Father, thank you. First and foremost, for the precious blood of the Lamb that was shed on our behalf. Thank you for the blood of Christ that atoned in a perfect way for the sin of humanity. Thank you, God, that for those of us who do sin, we have an advocate, and that advocate is Jesus Christ the righteous. God, I thank you that in Christ there is neither male nor female, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man. In Christ, we are all co-heirs of the eschatological gift of, of, of life and life eternal with you through faith in the finished work of your son. God, we have so much to be grateful for this morning. The voices of the children, I can hear them. The next generation of torchbearers for the gospel. A building that's nice and cool with speakers so that we can hear the gospel proclaimed, so that the musical instruments can be played, so that we can praise the name of your son. God, we have, I think it's safe to say that we want for nothing, really. Especially when we look outside of our co-centric circles, our little bubbles, and we compare what we have to what some of those in the rest of the world have on a daily basis. So, Father, help us to be grateful this morning. Grateful for you, for what it is that you've done, for your word, for your spirit, and for the work that you will accomplish. We are fully dependent on you today, God, for our life, for our breath, for our transformation and our sanctification. We humbly submit. You are the God of gods. There is no greater, as we sang this morning, great are you, Lord. Lead us and guide us this morning as we navigate the text. In Jesus' name, amen. I should have just prayed for an entire hour. Because who wants to preach 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1-7 through 7 in 2022 in America? <laughs> I do. I'm excited. I learned a lot in preparation for this. And I'm just going to come out and tell you that today we're barely going to chip the tip of the iceberg. It's going to be no different than when we opened up the conversation on submission and we began to deal with the household code. I said, this is the beginning of an ongoing conversation. This sermon is supposed to give birth to dialogue within the body. There are going to be different views, and I can't hit them all. There's going to be my view, and my view may differ with your view, and that's okay because these are most likely going to be non-selfific issues, which means that we can differ. Unity is not uniformity at AC squared. We want to talk about these things. We want to weigh the different views because if we believe that we have it all figured out and that we have all knowledge, what are we doing right now? You know, this study this morning is not just me speaking at you or to you. It's us together in the text learning what it is that I believe God gave me for us today. And if I had to preach this a year from now, I could guarantee you I would preach it differently. That's how God works. It's the living and breathing word of God. First Peter says that this message was sown with an imperishable seed. 
It doesn't fade like the flower in the field or like the grass on the hill. It eternally exists. And for that, we are forever thankful. So let's put 1 Peter chapter 3 up here. We're going to be reading verse 1 through 7. I think this may be the largest portion of the text that I've tried to tackle in an entire serving. Seven whole verses. Let's see if we can do it. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Before we even begin to dig into verse 1, we need some time to figure out what life was like for women in the first century. And I'm here to tell you, life for the woman in the first century was drastically different then than it is now. There's no other way to say it. Drastically different. The things that I'm going to say, just a quick side note, they're not my views. <laughs> so don't shoot the messenger. Everything that I'm about to share with you right now in this period of time, as we unpack what life was like for women in the first century, was written by historians and philosophers from back in the day. We have to learn to deal with these things because these are realities. Are they black eyes or is this the evolution of humanity? Well, there's going to be different views. Is there an objective standard to how we should view life? Or is it a subjective standard to how we should view life? These are questions that the church wrestles with. And there are two sides on the aisle. And you've got Christians shouting back and forth at one another instead of sitting down and listening and saying, well, tell me why it is that you believe that. So as we begin to unpack these things, I want you to know that these are not the views of this church. These are just the realities of history. According to historian and New Testament scholar William Barclay, under Jewish law, women were a thing. A thing. It pains me to even say that. Because Paul says in his letter to the Romans that it was to the Jews that God gave his oracles. Which means that they should have known, according to the psalmist, each of us have been fearfully and wonderfully made. They should have known according to Torah. 
that God created us both male and female. He made us in his image and in his likeness. How did, historically speaking, Jewish law get so far off that they embraced the reality that women were a thing? You can find Jewish law written, philosophical perspectives, historically speaking, that say the wife was owned by her husband in exactly the same way he owned his sheep and his goats. What? On no account could she leave him. Just as the animals couldn't make a decision to leave their owner, the wife could not make a decision to leave her husband. Although he could at any moment, for almost any reason, dismiss her. As the owner of the animals, he could have his way with the animals, life or death. And as the owner of the woman, he could have his way, relationship or no relationship. A woman was a thing. Now, I want to be clear here in case there's any misunderstanding. We're talking about first century, and in the days leading up to the first century, we're talking about Jewish law. We're not talking about Mosaic legislation. There is a drastic difference between traditions that gain momentum over time that have been implemented into the law by men and what God, through angels, gave to Moses at Sinai for Israel during the Mosaic Covenant. We're talking about two very different things. What about in Greek culture? In Greek culture, the duty of the woman was to remain indoors and to be obedient to her husband. I don't get it. The world says that the Bible is misogynistic. Within the library, we have two letters named after two women. And throughout the narratives, we find high value being placed on women. And then I come to history and I read these things. I'm like, I think the world has it backwards a little bit. I think that there's a misunderstanding here. And I ask myself, how did we get here? And then I remember really bad preaching and teaching. <laughs> That's how we got here. Under Roman law, a woman had no rights. No rights. Well, under the authority of her father, she was under patria potestis. I think I said that right. It's Latin for the father's power. This gave the father the right of life and death over his daughter. When she married, she passed equally into and under the power of her husband. Under Roman law, it could be said that women remained forever a child. The father or the husband had absolute legal authority, meaning that the woman was completely and forever at their mercy. Life was drastically different for women in the first century. It seems to me that the overall attitude of ancient civilization, and this is a bad attitude, by the way, but it seems to me that the overall attitude of ancient civilization embraced this idea that women were incapable creatures. And because they were incapable creatures, therefore they were worthy of inferior status. It's wild. 
Now, we've just used some general language to talk about Jewish law, Greek culture, and Roman law. Let's see if we can put some descriptive language to the general language. Joel Green notes that for Aristotle, raise your hand if you've heard the name Aristotle. I think everybody's in the room is going to put their hand up. Joel Green notes that for Aristotle, the relation of man to woman was by nature that of ruler and subject, the male being the ruler and the female being the subject. Again, the text gets so much abuse, and you got people who will praise the philosophy of Aristotle. We've got to ask ourselves, how did we get here? Dr. Keener writes that according to first century Jewish thinker Philo of Alexandria, the male naturally rules the female. Now let's pause for a second and let's ask ourselves, was the worldview of Philo, who, who, who came from Alexandria, who was a Hellenistic Jew, was his worldview influenced by the writings of Aristotle? Absolutely. 110%. And it drives me crazy when fundamentalists tell us or try to tell us that the text is not informed by the culture to any degree because it's inspired by God, as if God wouldn't use people who were birthed into a culture to write his words. It's like, what? <laughs> Philo says this, the husband-wife relationship is comparable to both the father-child and the slaveholder-slave relationships. Now, this is inconceivable to me. My relationship with my wife should be synonymous with that of a child? Absolutely not. And I can't even begin to wrap my mind around what it would be like to consider my relationship no different than a slave holder and a slave because I've never owned a slave and I pray none of us have. So that's kind of outside the bounds of our actual thinking. We could theorize, we could do a thought exercise at best. Plutarch. You guys ever heard of Plutarch? He believed that a wife ought not to make friends on her own. That's what he wrote. A woman is not even capable of making the simple decision of who can be within her social circle, according to Plutarch. He says she is to enjoy the friends of her husband. This is where it gets very interesting. The gods are the first and most important friends, and it is becoming for a wife to worship and to know only the gods that her husband believes in. No religious freedom in the first century. She must shut the door tight upon all strange rituals and odd superstitions, for with no god do stealthily and secret rites performed by a woman find any favor, not in society and not with her husband in the home. This is crazy stuff. This was the cultural norm from the time that Alexander was conquering the world to the time that Rome fell. In antiquity, I think it's safe to assume that husbands expected their wives to share in their religious practices. Fair assumption based on what we just read? Okay. For a wife to willfully choose a different religion was to challenge the husband's honor. 
Think about this. The text of Scripture is not authored in the English language. It's not authored from a Western pragmatic perspective. It was authored in the ancient Near East and in the East, and it was framed by the honor-shame culture. So ask yourself, what do you think would be the outcome for a woman who chose to dishonor her husband by pursuing religious freedom? Just ask yourself that question. Church, this was the dominant culture of the day. The worldview of Peter's audience would have been informed by everything that we just covered. Daryl Charles, I think he's spot on when he writes this. He says that given the social restrictions on women, it is exceedingly difficult for the modern reader, at least in many parts of the world, to visualize and empathize with a first century woman's problems if she were to choose to become a Christian and thereby refuse her husband's loyalties. I want us to remember that. That's the very thing I want us this morning to hold in the back of our mind as we navigate our way through the text. Can we do that? It is exceedingly difficult for the modern reader. That's you and me. Which means we need to come to the text with humility today. I don't care how many sermons we've heard on this. I don't care what your favorite pastor, preacher, or teacher has to say about this. We need to come to the text with humility. Because there is a great divide between us and them. It is exceedingly difficult for the modern reader to both visualize and empathize with a first century Christian woman who chose to abandon her husband's loyalties in an honor-shame culture in the ancient East. Can we hold that in the back of our minds as we begin? All right, I need you guys to read this next slide. Again, it seems to me that as Peter continues to lay out his household code, he continues to build category by category. His focus remains concentrated on the weaker and the more vulnerable within society. Now, we can't get around this fact. It's absolutely true that Peter offers instructions to everyone. We're not trying to sideline that or usurp that or marginalize it. However, when Peter decides to get specific, and he does get specific, he seems to focus on those with lesser power. The cast of slave and the class of wife. So I think that this is becoming absolutely clear that we can just read likewise or in the same way and see that Peter has introduced a new category to the household code. Remember, this is new. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. This is a brand new concept for them, a Christian worldview on a household code. And it's going to differ than all of the laws that we just covered. And all of those laws would have, found within, would have fell within their own household codes. Is this an attempt to subvert? Or is this an attempt to evangelize? That's a good question. Peter is very specific in what he writes. He writes, wives, be subject to your own husbands. This is submission within relationship. 
This is voluntary submission that has been extended, most likely built over time. Does that make sense? This is a great time to remind us of how we define submission around here. Submission is not blind obedience, and submission is not blind loyalty. It's not. Obedience and loyalty can fall within the confines of submission, but blind obedience and blind allegiance is not submission. What is submission? Submission in the context of 1 Peter is responsibly occupying one's role in society without compromising their position in Christ. We cannot say that enough around here. Submission is responsibly occupying our role, whether in the job field or in the family and in the home environment, responsibly occupying our role without compromising our position in Christ. That's how we define submission at AC Squared. If you're not asking someone to compromise their position in Christ, they're going to have no problem submitting to you. If you're in a lead role and you're not asking someone to compromise their position in Christ, they're going to have no problem following you as you follow Christ. This falls on the headship. Great responsibility. Not great power. (laughs) Now what's the goal of submission? That's the question we should be asking. We're looking at the text and we should say, well, what's the goal of submission? What is the purpose and function of submission in verse 1? And to answer that question correctly, we need to understand that Peter is addressing Christian women who are married to unbelievers. That's who Peter's targeting. Peter is targeting the Christian woman who is married to an unbeliever. And no, she wasn't dating him as a Christian and he was an unbeliever and she made a mistake getting into a relationship. That didn't happen in the first century. She most likely heard the gospel of God and was saved and now has to deal with being married in the first century and navigating all of these household codes that we just read before we dug in and trying to make that work out in an honor-shame culture. It's difficult for her. Something that we know almost nothing about. Peter is addressing the Christian woman who is married to the unbeliever. I love what New Testament scholar Peter Davids writes. Peter's concern at this point is not life within the Christian community. He's not addressing Christians' relationships with one another. Peter's concern at this point is the points where Christian community interfaces with the world around it. It's the touch points where Christians interact with the world. It is the spiritually alive, those who have been made alive through the gospel of God, it is the spiritually alive interacting with the spiritually dead with the goal of evangelizing them with the same gospel that saved us and them coming to the same salvation we know and understand through the love of God by faith in His Son. That's what Peter's concerned with here. The purpose and function of submission in the, immediate con- in the immediate context is therefore missional. The $20 word for the theologian is missiology. That's what it is. If you hear that word, just know, oh, they're talking about missions. We want to learn these things because this is the language that the church uses on internal conversations with one another. The purpose and function of submission is missional. It's evangelistic. 
You can't miss it. That they may be one, Peter writes. That they may be one. This is a phrase which in the Greek is descriptive of somebody coming to knowledge that they need to embrace the message of the gospel. Peter writes that they may be one, which means they're lost. That's how we know that Peter is talking to the Christian wife who's married to the unbeliever. Dennis Edwards says this beautifully. He notes that the phrase may be one stresses that within within evangelism there lies an element of persuasion. Listen to that. Within evangelism there exists an element of persuasion. And in in this context, the the persuasive power is rooted in the life of the wife over the words of the wife. You ever heard someone tell you, you can't argue someone into the kingdom? I think Peter would disagree. And I think he would use the life of a wife as an example of the persuasive power that God can use to bring people to salvation. Just read the text. That they may be one. Can you guys read this next slide for me, please? Let's read it together. You all nervous today? Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Peter's telling us that they're watching. Uh-oh. Who's, whose car is that? Okay. No, we're good. We're good. Is your, is your car okay? Is somebody messing with it out there? Okay. All right. It's okay. Look, Peter is telling his audience, specifically speaking to the Christian wives, he's telling them that the unbelieving husband is watching. Think about everything we read. The lack of the rights that a woman would have. Of course the husband would be watching. He's the Lord in his home. Verse 2 elaborates on what it is that's involved in bringing the unbelieving husband to faith. He says, it's what they see. Ladies, it's what they see. It's not so much what they hear. Now let me explain. Peter is not saying that these men have never heard the gospel before. That's not what Peter is saying here. Peter is saying these women heard the gospel themselves and got evangelized. So there's most likely two options. A, most likely, the wives went home, they shared the gospel with their husbands, and their husbands were like, absolutely not. I want nothing to do with that religion or that worldview or that belief. I don't even want you worshiping that way. That's probably most likely what happened. Option B, less likely, but possible, maybe plausible, They went to the home church environment in the first century with their wife to see what their wives were doing because they can't be making friends on their own. And so he went with her to see what it was that she was participating in. He heard the gospel being preached in the home church and yet he still decided to remain at odds with God. Peter is saying to the wives, if this is the context of your life, don't Try to argue him into the kingdom with your words. He's already heard the gospel. The seed has been planted. 
Tend to the soil and water the seed and let the testimony of your life woo him to the Lord. That's what he's saying. Strategically speaking, it's the beauty of her spirit-filled life. Peter says at maximum, it can lead to conversation. And at minimum, in the first century, they would most likely be praying that it would, be, that it would give birth to respect and honor in the midst of these newly discovered differences between the husband and the wife. Can you tell that Peter is concerned for their safety? Absolutely. He's trying to help them navigate some very treacherous waters, some uncharted territory, because life is drastically different for them than it is for us now. Nobody's walking around in the first century rocking a coexist t-shirt. It just don't happen. <laughs> now, wives, listen. Listen to this. Daughters, future wives, listen to this. You do not submit solely because society demands it. And you do not submit solely because your husband demands it. If you are a Christian wife, you willfully submit because both a respectful and a pure lifestyle, both respectful and pure conduct, they have the potential to, ev to evangelistically be effective in the life of your most beloved husband. That's why you choose to submit. Peter says that the story that a life of a Christian wife, the story it tells, he says it's strangely effective. They can be one without words. Now, if you're asking the question, well, Matt, you're saying that, you know, this respectful and pure life can be evangelistically effective in the life of my most beloved, but you're not telling me what that actually looks like. You're asking the right question. You're already pursuing the right trail. You're traveling the right path. The question that we should be asking is, what does a respectful and a pure life, what does respectful and pure conduct look like on a practical level? Because the women in the first century would have been like telling Peter, how do I do this? <laughs> my husband could leave me at any moment. If, he's, if, if we're Roman citizens, he could take my life at any moment. If we're in the Jewish context, he could divorce me at any moment. So we have to be asking the question, what does a respectful and a pure lifestyle look like on a practical level? And I would say this is the best question to ask. Can you read this slide out loud for me, please? In verse 3 and 4, if we just kind of take a 10,000-foot view, Peter gets very, very practical. Very practical. He says, do not let your adorning be, but rather let your adorning be. He sets up a juxtaposition, a compare and contrast, and he says, don't do this, rather do this. Standards of beauty were then, as they are now, culturally relative. No one culture at any point in time has cornered the market on beauty. I wish somebody would have told Jordan Peterson that before he made his most recent tweet about the Sports Illustrated model. You know, it's true. 
It's true. Beauty is culturally relevant. And we learn this as soon as we get outside of our little safety bubble. What's beautiful to me is not beautiful to everybody in the room. And pride would demand that everybody submit to my idea of beauty or somehow achieve my standard of beauty. That's not how culture works. Beauty is culturally relevant. This is something that Peter would have been well aware of. Are we aware that Peter went by the name of Cephas in Galatians chapter 2? Paul travels to Jerusalem and he meets with the most prominent pillars in the Jewish church, Cephas, James, and John. Now, when Jerusalem experiences some persecution and the pressure's on, Peter goes to Joppa, and from Joppa he visits Caesarea Philippi, and he evangelizes Cornelius and his household, and they're saved and baptized. Then he travels to Antioch, Galatians chapter 2. If you're wondering where Cornelius is, it's Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 2, we learn that Peter goes to Antioch, and he's visiting different churches that Paul's planted. And this are, these are not healthy interactions, by the way, that Peter's having in the different churches in Antioch. Peter is what we would call a well-traveled missionary, because by the time he's writing this letter, he's writing from Rome, which is colloquially called Babylon in the letter. He's a well-traveled missionary, which means that he would have been aware that there were different cultural standards in every place that he visited. Access to this type of information which the text gives us allows us to take hold of the reality that Peter is not taking up an offensive position against external beauty in and of itself. Peter was a Jew for goodness sake. He would have known the Torah. Rebecca is described as absolutely wonderful and beautiful to Jacob. She is. She's praised for her beauty in juxtaposition to Leah. The Torah, the authors of the Torah have no problem defining beauty as something that is positive. If you read Song of Solomon, which my wife and I just read the other day together, you can see that Solomon has no problem praising his wife for her, for her external beauty, and he loves it when she externally adorns herself. He says, do that, baby, and then let's hit the bedroom. He's all about it. The text of Scripture has zero issues talking about male-female companionship and what can lead to something that is beautiful within the confines of a God-honoring marriage. And beauty is a part of that. Adorning your body externally is a part of that. Peter would be well aware of all of these things. He's not, atta he's not attacking external beauty in and of itself. What he's doing is he's going after one's identity. He's going after one's foundation here. And this is where the text almost becomes synonymous with our cultural context. Identity and foundation. You see, the first century didn't differ much from our day and age in these capacities. The world then, like it is now, was dominated by luxury and decadence. Everybody in this room is probably walking around with a $1,300 cell phone. Everybody's got a laptop at home, generally speaking. You know, everybody's got a car. When you woke up today, you opened up your closet and you were like, hmm, I wonder what I'll wear. 
You had options. <laughs> In a world dominated by luxury and decadence, where clothing expressed not only status and wealth, but, one who is, but who one is, Peter seems to go straight for the jugular here. I mean, he's doing it. Ladies, wives who claim to be daughters of the king, do not do this, rather do this. He's going straight for the jugular. So if Peter's going to go straight for the jugular in his cultural context, maybe I should go straight for the jugular in our cultural context. It drives me crazy that the church has mishandled passages like this for so long. This has nothing to do with cosmetics. The church has put so much effort into birthing purity culture. Gag me with a spoon. <laughs> you can teach people to be pure all day long. If they're not in right relationship with God, it means nothing. That's what Peter's after here. I think if he were here today, he would be like, the church has done what? They've invested so much time and so much energy and spilled so much ink on what is purity culture? Get right with God. If you get right with God, you know what's going to happen? Your life is going to be transformed. Your old desires are going to be replaced with new desires. The things that once pleased you are going to disgust you. I know I was a vile individual. I was a vile man. A wretched man. And the things that once used to satisfy me now no longer please me. They disgust me. That's the power of the gospel of God's grace. Why do we take passages like this and try to make them things they're not? What we should be doing is teaching one another to exegete them properly. This is about your foundation being in right relationship with God, period. It drives me nuts. C.S. Lewis said it best. I think it was mere Christianity. Respectful living. Purity and modesty, piety, those things are not Christianity. They're not. Right relationship with the God of gods, the creator and the sustainer of the universe, that's Christianity. And out of Christianity is birthed respectful living, pure desires, modesty, and piety. But those things are not Christianity. If you get it twisted, you are in a false religion. We're going after it today. I'm sick of people twisting the scriptures for their own delight. It drives me crazy. I'm sweating because I'm so angry about the history of the church. And we have to wear this black eye. We have to say not all preachers and teachers have done this. And those who haven't, praise God for them. But the ones that have, they need to repent and turn to God or they're not going to get right with God. And then God will judge them based on what it is that they did. And James says, not many of you should be teachers. Ladies, ladies, I'm speaking to you because Peter's speaking to you. Do not put your identity in the things of the world. How much time do we spend not just braiding but dyeing and cutting our hair? Talking about identity here. It's not sinful, 
to braid, to dye, to cut your hair. But I'm asking, how much time in juxtaposition? What about your message last week? 10% of the day, and you were saying, that's so much time. That's the worldview that we want to frame this with, ladies. I'm not coming at you sideways. I'm just asking an honest question. The external, the putting on of gold, the things that God created, the good gifts that God created, do we make idols out of the gift instead of the gift giver? That's the question. Is it the clothing we wear, the things that we shop for online that give us joy, or is our joy birthed in the reality that we are in right relationship with the life giver? I can't answer these questions for you, and I struggle with them myself. I've got an Amazon account. I love to shop online. I drive a nice car. I'm not talking down to you right now. I'm saying guilty is charged. Don't be grounded in the external. Don't build your foundation on the created. Do not exchange your worship of the immortal creator for the created, Paul would say. Don't do that. It's idolatry. Now, God is concerned, Peter says, with the hidden person of the heart. So my question is, AC squared, are we concerned with the hidden person of the heart? Or are we only concerned with the external? I don't even know if I want to keep preaching. <laughs> the greatest transformative work, thank you, Brandon. The greatest transformative work of the Spirit unfolds in that which is unseen. God is most interested in transforming the intrinsic. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God, David writes. He's not saying, put your physical hand into my chest cavity and pull out this old heart and give me a new one. He's saying, wash me with your word, Lord, with your laws that I delight in. Change and transform me so that I can image you well. God is concerned with inner transformation. It is the imperishable seed of God's word that gives birth to an imperishable beauty. Not the other way around. It is the imperishable seed that gives birth to imperishable beauty. Daughters of God, sisters in the Lord, let your, ador let your adorning stem from the imperishable. Now again, some of you in the room might be asking the question, Matt, tell me what that looks like on a practical level. I'm trying to figure it out myself. <laughs> I'm literally working these things out right now. Peter says, imperishable beauty is both a gentle and a quiet spirit. A gentle and a quiet spirit. Ladies, let me tell you that God is not asking you to take on anything that he himself has not already taken on or embodied. And we're going to prove it. Brent is not in the house. We don't have a moving camera. So instead of people reading today like we normally would, I'll read unless someone wants to come up and read in that microphone. Do I have any volunteers? I need two readers if we've got volunteers. Anybody? Okay, look up Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 29. I need one more. You'll read, Michael. I need you to look up Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2. Both of you come on up here. You'll use that microphone right there. Let's see, I can give you the... Uh, 
It's on. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 29. Right there, Brandon, at that, at that microphone right there. Yep. 66, verse 2. Okay. Whatever version you read. And it's 11... Chapter 11, verse 28 and 29. 28 through 29. Okay. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Here it is. The character and nature of the God-man. I am gentle. If you're a Christian wife in the first century with an unbelieving husband and you have anxiety over the fact that your most beloved is lost, Jesus says, give that burden to me. That's what Jesus says. He says, I'm gentle. Now you go be gentle. Come on up here, Michael. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2. While Michael's coming up here, let me remind you that in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This Greek word is the same as the translated English word meek. So gentle and meek. So these are the characteristics and the, the nature. These are the attributes of Jesus himself. Isaiah 66, chapter two, read it, or 66, verse 2, read it loud and proud for him. All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Thank you. Isaiah, probably one of the greatest theologians of the First Testament says that God will look on those who are humble and contrite and tremble at his word. In the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, the LXX, that phrase, contrite in heart, that's one Greek word. It's the same Greek word as quiet. If you are a believing wife who's married to an unbelieving husband and you want God to look on you and hear your prayers... Be both gentle and contrite in spirit, and God will be for you. That's what Peter's saying. That's what Peter's after here. Now, I'm no rocket scientist, but I'm not sure that the apostle could give any better advice to the Christian wife of the non-believer in the first century. I don't think there's any better advice. I mean, we're talking Beatitudes, Sermon on the Mount, and Isaiah. Come on, church. Does it get any better than that? I don't know. <laughs> the wordless witness of the wife takes on a deeper level of clarity as we come to understand that it is directly tied to two fundamental aspects of God's character and nature. If you doubt me, I'll just redirect you to 1 Peter chapter 2. You can read verse 21 through 25 for a clear example of the life of Christ, who was reviled and did not revile back, who when threatened did not respond but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Like I said, God is not asking anyone to take on anything that he himself has not already taken on. And for those of you who were already thinking, well, that's Jesus, Matt. 
That's Jesus. I can't do that. That's Jesus. These next two verses, they're for you. Can you guys read this? It's not just Jesus who could do it. It's not just Jesus who could exemplify it in his life. It was the holy women of old. When I read verse 5, the first question I end up asking myself is, who are these holy women? Peter's speaking in the plural. Who are the holy women who hoped in God? Unfortunately, Peter never tells us. He makes this really strong assertion in verse 5, but he doesn't back it up with any particular passage in mind. But if you know how Jewish Midrash works, the art of storytelling and exegeting a homily based on the Hebrew text, then Peter would have no problem just making a statement like this and expecting his audience to know who it is that he's talking about. That's how Midrash works. Now, Peter never tells us, but it's not a problem, church. It's not a problem. Scholars are divided on the issue because of its ambiguity, and we just need to be aware of that so we can deal with it. Some read this as a statement of honor bestowed on the matriarchs of Israel. They see the holy women of old as Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel, and Leah, a reading that can be paralleled with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. However, those who take this reading like myself, we're divided on how exactly we arrive at this conclusion. Is Peter dependent on internal evidence? Chapters like Hebrews 11 that give honor to the women that I just mentioned? Is Peter dependent on external evidence like the writing of Jubilees, rabbinic literature, and Midrash? Maybe he's dependent on both. Who knows? I'm sure he was reading the literature in his day. We don't have to be divided. We just have to come to our own conclusion. And then we have to be able to defend it. Other theologians say we can't be sure who the women are because Peter's unclear, and they just stop right there. The text doesn't tell us, so they don't even wonder. It's my opinion that Peter is comfortable using both internal and external evidences to reinforce his position. I think this will become even more clear later on in chapter 3 when we talk about Jesus proclaiming the gospel to those who had already perished. But that's a sermon for another day. Having dealt with the issue of ambiguity, let's talk about what we do know. New Testament scholar Thomas Schreiner notes that the most important comment in verse 5 is that these women, whoever they are, put their hope in God. So my question to the wives today in the room, whether you're married to a Christian man or a non-Christian man, is do you put your hope in God like the holy women of old? That's really the question because it comes right back to identity. These women, these women who had been set apart, they were able to submit to their husbands because they were confident that God rewards those who place their trust in him. They would know the author of the Psalms, the different authors, and what they would say about God being a rewarder to the faithful. They would know the Proverbs, the wisdom literature, about God being a rewarder of the faithful. 
They would know God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob about blessing those who are, blessing, who are a blessing and cursing those who are a cursing. I love what Dr. Brown says. He says, if you try to curse what God has blessed, you will fail. And if you try to bless what God has cursed, you will fail. It makes things like this just come to life for me. It brings back the idea, like I just said, of a firm foundation, understanding our identity. The women were confident. They were confident to hope in God, and their hope gave birth to submission. Remember, submission. Occupying their role as a wife without compromising their position in Christ. Without compromising their home life. Without compromising their family without compromising their relationship with their husband so they could continue to be the light that shines in the darkness, knowing that the light will overcome the darkness. That's what Peter's talking about here. When their hus- were their husbands always right, the husbands of these wives? Absolutely not. <laughs> However, they chose to adorn themselves with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, I would say that women who are capable of doing this should never be viewed as weak. Never be viewed as weak. Karen Jobes in her commentary says that it makes her disgusted that a portion of the text that would have equipped slaves and women to have joy in life is somehow been framed as an anti-feminist like text that oppresses women. I think that's beautiful. She allows the historical context to crush the modern cultural context. She's a very smart woman. Their husbands were not always right. They adorn themselves with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. The women who do this are not weak. It takes real strength and authentic faith to strive for peace while simultaneously submitting to God's plans. It does. And the perfect example of that is Sarah. <laughs> She had a dirt bag for a husband. <laughs> She's my sister. <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen to you, but I know I'm going to be okay. <laughs> I mean, these are the patriarchs, baby. This is who we got. These are our forebearers. When I read about them, I don't feel so bad. <laughs> I fit right in with them, as a matter of fact. Peter says that Sarah embodied this type of character in her own life. She was a holy woman, a renowned woman, a woman of strength and character and faith. We have only one textual example of Sarah referring to Abraham as Lord. It comes from Genesis chapter 18, verse 12. Genesis chapter 18, verse 12. Let's see here. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure. It's a very interesting verse for Peter to choose to make his point. I don't know about you, but I don't see anything in the immediate context in verse 12 that illustrates obedience. <laughs> I, don't, I don't. I just read it to you. As a matter of fact, you know, when I think about what I just read, She's not being obedient to Abraham or to God. (laughs) What I see is a sarcastic comment being made in response to the promise of God. Just read the verses that precede it. 
Maybe Peter thought it was significant, as do I, that Sarah was able to show some level of respect while doubting God's promise and referring to her husband as an old man. I mean, we're talking about ancient Near Eastern honor-shame culture. You got the creator and the sustainer of life, the angel of the Lord, and her Lord, her master. And she laughs at the promise that God makes, and she refers to her master as an old man. But she doesn't do it without referring to him first as Lord. It's a level of respect. Even in the midst of her laughter, Sarah chose to respectfully refer to Abraham by the title that he was due. She showed him deference. Christian wives who model Sarah's attitude, as imperfect as it may have been, Peter says they become her daughters to the extent that they do what is right and do not give way to fear. If you're here today, if you're in the room today, and you're married to an unbeliever, my advice is no different than Peter's. Hope in God. Submit to your husband and fear nothing, trusting that in time God will use you to bring him to faith. That's my advice to you. It's my understanding that these six verses are rooted in evangelism. Missiology, remember we said that? This text is missional. And the church has turned it into a marriage manual. <laughs> what? <laughs> they tell wives of Christians who are married to Christian men that they should silently lead their husband to the Lord. If you're a Christian dude and you need your wife to silently lead you to the Lord, you have given up your position as the head of the house. You have submitted to the world and to sin, and you're asking the weaker vessel to now lead you? <laughs> we need to be having a different conversation. This text is missional. A marriage manual. I just don't get it. I don't know if Peter would have gave Christian wives and Christian husbands different advice, but it seems very likely to me that he would have been having a conversation immediately with the husband. Matthew chapter 18, it's church discipline time, baby. You don't want to listen to me? I'm going to get another one. You're out of line. Your home is in disorder, Paul would say. You're disqualified. You don't want to listen to two? We'll get three. You don't want to listen to three? We'll get the elders. You don't want to listen to the elders? We'll get the church. We'll bring you before the church. You don't want to change? We'll excommunicate you. Not because we hate you, but because we believe that if we turn you over to what it is that you're pursuing, you will learn not to blaspheme. You will forego the blessing like the prodigal. You will find yourself in a wasteland, and you'll be like, how did I get here? I need to go back. It's not mean. It's biblical. Why do we turn things and skew context when we could just preach the text the way it was supposed to be read? I don't get it sometimes. I'm a 10 or 11 year Christian. I don't even have like a, I got saved on this day. I was reborn on this day. I don't have a second birthday. I know God saved me and he's been transforming me ever since. I know God gifted me and I know I'll never be the same. That's what I know. 
How come I can read and come to these conclusions and people that have been in it for their whole lives can't? I'll tell you why. It's a lack of humility. It's a coming to the text and thinking that because you've read it, you already know instead of saying, Holy Spirit, lead me, guide me, change me, and transform me. James, you said it two weeks ago. It doesn't matter how well we preach the word. If the spirit ain't in it, it's worthless. In the midst of her laughter, she knew how to show her husband deference. When he was not leading her properly, as other examples in the narrative gave, she knew how to show him deference. She knew how to put her hope in God, Peter said. And because she knew how to put her hope in God, she knew how not to compromise her position as a wife in the ancient Near East. These six verses are rooted in evangelism. Amen? Peter is concerned with building the kingdom. And he recognizes the power, as do we, that's put on display in the life of a Christian wife. Women, your testimony is valid your testimony is powerful, and God will use it to establish his kingdom. Don't let anybody try to convince you otherwise. You are a daughter of the creator of the universe. He gives you your identity. He tells you who you are. And operate from that and that only. Amen? Amen. Amen. I wish someone would have grabbed me by my ears and told me that when I was a young kid. They might have had to punch it, to, you know, punch it into me, you know. But. I literally wish someone would have just told me how it was instead of trying to sugarcoat it. Last verse. We're almost done. Let's read it together. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. There it is again. Likewise. Did we already forget? Or are we able to recall what we learned about this term earlier? This term can be translated as a phrase. Right? In the same way. When we come to verse 7, we should read it no different than we read the opening in verse 1. Peter is introducing a new category. So when we read likewise in verse 7, we should understand it to mean that Peter is saying, here is another example. Category shift. I'm no longer speaking to the wives. Now I'm speaking to the husbands. In this new example, the first thing Peter writes is that the husband is to live with their wife in an understanding way. That's a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to do. My wife would tell you. Matt sucks at that. I slammed the door so hard this week I broke the sign that was hanging on the front of it. I said I slammed the door in a fight that we were having so hard that I broke the sign that was hanging on the front of it. I had a fit of anger. A five-year-old temper tantrum. Really. And it's not the end of the world. Our marriage is not over. 
It's really just another day in the life of the Overlander family. <laughs> Not something that I'm proud of, but it's just a reality right now. God will sanctify us and change us, but that's kind of the person that your pastor can be. <laughs> yeah. You know, and Peter says, live with your wife in an understanding way. We just breeze by this, like, got that. Check, done, easy, next. <laughs> Don't think so. <laughs> the literal translation is living together according to all knowledge. That kind of changes it a little bit. Translation, be considerate. Be considerate. Again, husbands are like, I'm always considerate. No, no you're not. <laughs> I'm just here to tell you. I can talk to you a lot different than I can talk to the ladies, gentlemen. We can. We can have those hard discussions. We can. Well, I don't feel the need to go ham now, but if you all give me a reason to, I'm telling you I will. You know, and I won't do it alone either. There are men in the church who will help me to call you to correction. And if I am out of line, I depend on you to call me to correction. I told Johnny two weeks ago, if it gets inauthentic in here, I'm depending on you to come to me and to tell me, Matt, don't do that anymore. That's my hope that the congregation would say, as mature Christians, pastor, don't do that again. Maybe one of you needs to pull me aside after the sermon and say, I don't want to hear that you're slamming your door like that anymore. It might not hurt. Live together according to all knowledge. Be considerate, husbands. On a practical level, I want to know if as husbands we take the necessary time to study our wives. Do we? Are we interested in studying our most beloved? Or do we think that we've got them all figured out already? Do we have an awareness, gentlemen, of their needs? Like, really? Their needs? Do we prioritize their needs? Do we strive to put their greater good before the greater good of ourselves? That is agape. That is the way that God loves us. When Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, that's what I'm asking you. Are you putting the greater good of the wife before your own greater good? Or do you marginalize her so that you can have what you want when you need it? The mirror is right here. And I'm saying, I fail constantly. Gentlemen, this is just the tip of the iceberg. Peter tells us that we're to show honor to the woman, recognizing that they are co-heirs with us in the grace that God will give us in eternity. Co-heirs. I prayed it this morning. There's neither male nor female in Christ. All are one. How seriously do you take Paul? Now here's the million dollar question. What does Peter mean when he refers to the wife as the weaker vessel? This is what everybody wants to know. The guys don't care about living in an understanding way. They don't care about honor. They always come and they're like, Pastor, she's the weaker one, right? She needs to submit, right? <laughs> Who are you? 
What Bible are you reading? Did you seriously miss everything? The forest for the trees? What does Peter mean when he refers to the wife as the weaker vessel? Well, we could just come straight out and say what's probably most obvious. Right? Physical strength could be what Peter's talking about here. It could be. God created men to produce testosterone, which means, generally speaking, we are bigger, stronger, and faster with more endurance. That's just a reality that we have to deal with. However, I'm not sure that Peter's focus is on the physical aspects. Remember that in our opening this morning, we said that in Peter's household code, he seems to concentrate on the weaker, more vulnerable within society? Remember we said that? <laughs> so when Peter writes the weaker vessel, just maybe he's addressing the reality that in the first century, the female was weaker in the sense of both societal entitlement and societal empowerment. Maybe that's the context that we're dealing with here. I don't think Peter's interested in stating the obvious. I think Peter's addressing the cultural, historical context that dominates the life of his audience. That's what I think. There's no females in the, in the Colosseum. There's no females on the battlefield. They're well aware of this. Maybe in, the Spartan three, uh, maybe in Sparta, things were a little different. We'll say that there are exceptions to every rule, but generally speaking, everybody knows what's going on here. But because we don't study the context, we're like, they're just physically weaker. I don't think so. I think it had a lot more to do with the historical cultural context. Both of these, contextually speaking, both of these are your best options. So you have to choose one and know how to defend it. Or like me, you can just embrace them both as viable options. Because I think they are both viable options. But I think that contextually, we need to look at the societal empowerments before we look at the physical weakness. Now, before we move on from here, close the book and fellowship, I'd like to source the wisdom of Thomas Schreiner in an attempt to clarify what it is that Peter is not saying. We need to go there. We do. We need to go there. We have done some correction, but there is much more correction that needs to take place. Nothing, listen to me, nothing in the New Testament grants that women are weaker emotionally. Women are not weak emotional creatures. You cannot get that from the text of Scripture. As a matter of fact, in many ways, their vulnerability as women in sharing their emotions and feelings demonstrates two things. They're more courageous and they're stronger than men on an emotional level. That's a fact. I agree with Thomas Schreiner. You don't have to agree with me or him. He's way smarter than anyone in this room. <laughs> I mean, the dude's old. He's got life experience. He's dedicated his life to the text. He and I don't agree on everything, but this is a major point of agreement. Now, they're not weaker emotionally. Peter, in this letter, never suggests that women are weaker morally or spiritually in comparison to men. He doesn't do that. 
To hold such a worldview, to say that women are weak moral creatures or that they are weak spiritual creatures, to hold this worldview would suggest that men are actually better Christians than women. This is not taught anywhere in the Scriptures. And it's not evident in history. Finally, I'd like to point out that the women are described as weaker, which in context implies that men are in fact themselves weak. Weak, weaker, and weakest. Context determines meaning, gentlemen. Husbands, do not lose sight of the reality that in Christ, women are fundamentally equal with men. Do not lose sight of that. In the end, we will both share in the eschatological gift of eternal life through faith in the finished work of Christ. Let's strive, gentlemen, to see our wives no different than God views them. If we fail to do this, then our prayers will be rendered ineffective, Peter says. Six verses dedicated to the women. One verse dedicated to the men. And in the one verse that's dedicated to the men, it comes with a curse that you will experience in your life if you cannot treat your wife as a daughter of God. Do you not want to be heard by the creator and the sustainer? Do you want your prayers to be hindered as a Christian man? I don't. And Peter says, if we fail to do this, our prayers will be rendered ineffective. One scholar notes that our relationship with God can never be right if our relationships with one another are wrong. You got a problem with that? You doubt me? Open your Bible and read Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 and 24, and close your Bible and think about it. It's time to wrap it up. Look, this is the beginning of a conversation on what submission looks like. It's no different than the beginning of the conversation in the weeks prior, and it will be no different than next week when we go back to dealing with everyone in, according to our out, in accordance with our outline. But here's the deal. We need to have grace with one another and we need to have patience with one another because different households run their homes differently. Different marriages are different. So to say that there is an objective standard <coughs> that everyone has to shoot for, <coughs> apart from faith in Jesus and the work that he completed on our behalf, I think that's ridiculous. If we start looking at one another and saying, if they would only parent their children, if he could only love her like this, if she could only do this better, we are going to deconstruct and divide our own healthy body. The world and the enemy are already on that mission. He seeks to destroy. We cannot look at one another and think that we know best for another family. When there is wisdom that is asked for, then we can give a response. But if there is no sin issue, if there is no sin issue, <coughs> we got to leave it alone. 
And we got to entrust ourselves as well as our brothers and sisters to the one who judges justly. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for leading us through this discussion this morning. I pray, God, that we would continue to dialogue about what our thoughts are when it comes to things like this. How we should live, how we should reflect you, how we can image you within the church and outside of the church. The touch points with the lost should be different than the touch points with the saved. Help us to know the difference and to navigate those differences well. Help us to love one another the way that you love us. God, I lift up any wives in the house who may be married to men who are not Christians, and I ask that you would give them a special blessing of strength and endurance, that you would give them peace in their mind and joy in their heart as they continue to put their hope in you, knowing that you are the one who can save their most beloved. For the husbands, Lord, I pray that we would live in an understanding way with our wives that we would study them, and that we would pursue putting their greater good in front of our own. God, you have given us the example, and we learned a couple of weeks ago, our life is supposed to trace the example of your life. Our life, our steps are supposed to walk in the footsteps that you left for us. So Lord, in accordance with your spirit and your will and your word, we pray that you would continue to grow us and sanctify us. In the name of Jesus, amen.